If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we're talking about the gods and myths of the Viking Age with Professor Caroline Larrington, a fellow in medieval English literature at St John's College, Oxford, and the author of The Norse Myths, A Guide to Viking and Scandinavian Gods and Heroes. Putting the questions to Caroline was our content director, Dave Musgrove. Caroline Larrington is Professor of Medieval European Literature at the University of Oxford. She particularly researches in Old Norse, Icelandic, uh, and also Arthurian literature and folklore. So she's an expert in many things and an author of many books. Uh, One of her recent publications is The Norse Myths, A Guide to the Gods and Heroes, published by Thames and Hudson. And it's a great guide to the subject, uh, and it's what we're going to dip into today. So, um, So thank you very much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. So when we talk about uh, the old Norse myths and the Norse gods, the first question I think we need to address is what time and place would we be talking about there? So, you know, people will associate this with the Vikings, the Viking Age. I don't know how comfortable you are with that as a word and whether that's something we should be using. But what can you just drop us into the time and space where uh, this topic is centred? Well, I suppose we can start from the earliest evidence we have for any of the myths. 
And that might be from around AD 600 on picture stones in on Baltic islands, like the island of Gotland, for example, where there's quite a few of them. And the then the recording of the myths will go on right into the 12th century when they're actually being written down for the first time. So it's quite a long period of time that we're talking about. But in terms of when they were active, perhaps, as stories that connected with people's beliefs, we're probably talking from 600 to about the year 1000. And in terms of space, uh, I think most people would understand where the bounds of modern Scandinavia are. Um, Are these beliefs, is this belief system constrained within that? Or would it be something that would be uh, wider than that. And I suppose that links into a question about whether these are the same beliefs that um, the Germanic settlers who came to Britain, uh, whether they were operating within that same sort of cosmology, if that's an appropriate word. Well, the, the homeland of the myths is very much Scandinavia in the way that we would understand it now. And of course, that would include Iceland as well. And then later, once it was colonised, Greenland. But we should also remember that, of course, there's a huge Viking settlement or Viking Old Norse settlement in the British Isles. And some of the best best evidence that we have for the myths is actually in places like the Isle of Man, where there's some fantastic stone sculptures that represent some some motifs from the myths. As far as the Anglo-Saxons are concerned, our problem is that so little was written down about Anglo-Saxon belief that we can't really say whether the stories are um, understood at all in Anglo-Saxon England. All we know is that the gods have broadly similar names. But all that we know about the Anglo-Saxon gods is really that they're tied up with the same days of the week as they are in the other Germanic languages. And we just don't have a, a single story that connects with the Old Norse mythology that survived from the Anglo-Saxon English yeah, but when you see those similar names like Woden to to Odin or Ovin, you can correct me there if I'm if I'm, I'm wrong. Odin, yeah. Uh, Odin. Um, you, you kind of you know uh, to the untutored eye, that sounds like well, that must be a similarity, so there must be the same sort of thing. But you you think that's we can't really we can't say that because we've simply got no evidence to to suggest that that is or isn't the case. We can. It it seems like a reasonable guess in the sense that they are the same figure. But one of the things we have to remember about Old Norse Viking religion is that it's a very localised kind of affair, that what people believed and practised in Denmark is probably very different from Sweden and very different from Norway. So it's not like a huge institutional religion where everybody signs up for the same beliefs. It's all about localised cults and localised practices. So Odin seems to have been a, quite an important god in Denmark. In in Sweden, it's the god Freyr. And Thor seems to be more important in Norway. And because most of the settlers in Iceland came from Western Norway, Thor also becomes important in Iceland too. Okay, so uh, we'll maybe come back to some of those points um, in a bit. Um you, you, you mentioned that you know 600 is perhaps a, a time when we can start thinking about these things. But in your book, I think you do talk about the, the possibility that these uh, these ideas, these stories, could have deeper origins um, uh, and uh, and and perhaps go back further. Do you talk us through that? How far back do you think it's possible to say that these might be are these are these based on on prehistoric ideas, for instance? 
Oh, I'm sure that they are prehistoric, but the, the problem that we have is when can we actually prove that people were using these stories? When do we have any actual evidence for? I'm pretty sure that there was something probably quite like this myth system from well before naught um, AD, but we just don't have any evidence to prove it. But the, the myths do look as if they've been, or many of the myths, I should say, look as if they've been through a process of transmission over, over generations. Okay. So um, you mentioned the picture stones and things like that, which give us a, a sense of, of, of the early stages of it. But what are the, what are the principal sources, uh, the documentary sources through which we understand uh, the Norse uh, myths and legends today? Well, we have, in terms of written evidence, we have probably three major kinds of source. And the, the, the earliest one, and perhaps the most difficult one, is a particular kind of Old Norse poetry called generally skaldic poetry. And this is poetry which is very complicated. It has lots of very riddle-like kennings in it. And some of these kennings make references to the gods and little details from some of their stories. I'm going to have to stop you and ask you, what is a kenning? Uh, a kenning is a, a kind of metaphor for something. It's a term that you can use to describe something else. And so you have these in Old English, for example. So the sea can be called the Gannet's Bath or the Whale Road. So that's what a kenning is. And so, so for example, um, you can call one god by the name of another god in this poetry. So if you want to talk about Thor, you could say the Odin of the hammer, because the hammer is Thor's weapon. But you can't say Thor is the Thor of the hammer, because we already know he's Thor. So you need to be telling somebody something slightly different about it. And so we have quite a few of these kennings which make a reference to a little fact about the gods. But what we don't have is any really sustained stories in the Skaldic poetry. We just have one, um, a poem called Thorsdralpa, which does tell the story of Thor going to visit the giant Geröder and what happened to him there. But otherwise, the, the Skaldic poetry, which is the oldest poetry, probably um, composed from about the middle of the ninth century onwards, so before Christianity comes to Scandinavia, it gives us some information, but nothing very systematic. So if we want systematic accounts of the gods, we have to turn to Eddic poetry, which is a rather simpler style of poetry, more like the kind of poetry that we have in Old English with alliteration and with very few complicated kennings and metaphors. And this kind of poetry does tell stories. And so most of the main stories that we have about the gods are preserved in this poetry. Now, when does that date from? We don't really know because it's anonymous. It's orally transmitted. But the main sources for it are written down in the 13th century. So if they're written down at all, they are obviously written down by Christians because writing is a Christian technology. And therefore, questions can be asked about what did these Christian writers decide to write down and what did they miss out? Did they tweak things around? Did they edit stuff out? And of course, 
Those are interesting questions to think about, but we can't really get any answers. And the third source that I should mention is a text which is normally known sometimes as the Prose Edda, sometimes as the Snorra Edda, the Edda written by a man called Snorri Sturluson, who was a scholar, a politician, a chieftain, a poet in his own right, who lived in the early 13th century. And he wrote a, a handbook to scaldic poetry, that complicated poetry I was talking about before. And he realised in order to explain how this poetry worked, he would have to explain the kennings. And then he realised that if he wanted to explain the kennings, he had to explain the mythology that underlay the kennings. And so he gives us a, a very systematic explanation of Norse mythology from before the creation of the world right up to Ragnarok, to, to Doomsday and after. And so we owe Snorri an enormous debt for having preserved and systematised and explained all of this material. But we also have to be a little bit cautious about relying exactly on everything that Snorri says as reflecting actual Old Norse belief. So Snorri and uh, and the Eddas uh, allow us to see these stories through the prism of Christianity. Is that is that a, a fair assessment of, of, of that? Well, I think it would be unkind and unfair to Snorri to suggest that he'd done a great deal of tampering with the stories. So it's just a, a kind of little warning that we have to bear in mind. So, for example, after the um, universe has been created and it's inhabited at that point mainly by frost giants and the first man in one of the versions of the creation myth has been created, uh, Snorri pretty well invents a flood which washes away lots and lots of the giants. But there's no evidence anywhere else at all in any of the sources for this flood. It just looks as if he thinks if there's a huge flood that washes away the giants in Christian myth in the form of Noah's flood, then Norse myths should probably have had one as well. And that's the most obvious example, perhaps, of Snorri interfering with his material. But he doesn't editorialise particularly. He doesn't say, um, look at this stuff, it's wrong to believe it particularly, or Odin is really the devil, or any of those kinds of approaches. He reports the stories mostly quite straight. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because you would expect uh, him writing. He's he's a, a Christian by the time he's writing. You'd expect him to have a have a view on these uh, pagan uh, pagan thoughts and religions, and and possibly a negative view. So what what was what was his game? Why was he why why was he recording these in uh, in this fashion? Well, he's he's very clever, I think. He prefaces the whole text of the Snorra Edda with a prologue in which he explains that obviously when God created humanity, humans knew perfectly well who had created them and they knew who created the world. But as time went on, they forgot. And the Israelites, let's say, all stayed in touch with the creator God. But other humans kind of drifted away from this understanding, and they started worshipping the sun and sticks and stones and rocks because they thought they were special. And they didn't put together the question of who it was who created the sun with the Christian God himself. So with this lack of knowledge comes 
the opportunity for very smart people, and this is how Snorri explains this, that after the fall of Troy, a bunch of very clever refugees from Asia migrated to Scandinavia, and because their civilization was more advanced, they explained or they, they claimed to the Scandinavians that they were really gods, which is a great thing to do because then people give you sacrifices and presents and land and they build temples for you and so on. And so Snorri explains that this set of gods weren't really gods at all, but just incredibly clever humans. And this is a way of explaining pagan gods, which is known as euhemerism, after the, the Greek philosopher, late classical Greek philosopher who first thought it up. And it's one of the most common medieval explanations for myths, alongside the other possibility, which is that the gods are all demons stalking around the world trying to um, baffle people and, and lead them into sin. Okay. Um so you made the point earlier, um, uh, and perhaps we could just go into this a little bit more. Um, that there's no there's no real uniformity in the way that um, that these uh, stories may have been understood, and in different parts of Scandinavia they focused on 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 perhaps uh, different gods uh, in in different ways. So there's no dogma, and I guess that's because it's not written down. There's no there's no there's no defined way in which you need to understand this. Um, could you go into that a little bit more? Just how how far do you think people were of the same mind about these stories that they were hearing? How did, would would people across uh, the, the Viking world and across the, the period have understood things in the same way generally, um, but just with different nuances? I think probably they would have understood the stories generally in the same way. And the fact that we have these motifs turning up on the Isle of Man in the, the picture stones there, um, quite like some of the motifs we find earlier in Gotland, suggests that there is a general repertoire of stories and heroic legends which is understood. Um, but I think probably the, the differences, if you like, are more to do with practice. So your temple is dedicated to Freya and not to Odin, and you bring him the particular kind of sacrifices that he likes, and you're doing that maybe for fertility in order to make sure that you have a good harvest. But if you're in Norway, you're sacrificing to Thor because you want good winds, good weather, because you're more interested in fishing. Um, if you're a member of the elite, if you're a warrior, you'll be sacrificing to Odin because he's the god, one of the main gods of war, it seems though he's, uh, his war tactics can be a bit sneaky, it appears. And he's also the god of poetry. So if you're a poet, you have a more personal relationship with him. So it's, it's kind of horses for courses. And of course, what women were doing in the system is a little bit more difficult to pick out because they don't appear in the historical record. And we can assume that women were, were praying to Frigg and to Freya, the two main female goddesses for help in childbirth or in pregnancy or in order to secure a loving marriage. Um, but also, of course, women are so connected with fertility that they they turn up as priestesses at uh, shrines for Freyr, and there seems to be a kind of almost marriage-like relationship between the priestess and the god there. So you've, you've got to, to the nub of one of the questions that I... 
uh, I've asked quite a few experts uh, over the years in, the, in this podcast about, and I'm not sure I've ever got a completely satisfactory answer. Maybe you're going to come up with it. Is how th- th- you've got these stories of these gods and uh, some sort of pantheon. Um, how did can we say anything about how your yeah, everyday person living in Denmark in the ninth century, tenth century? responded to that were were they i mean there are these sites these temples where we presumably there was some sort of worship going on but but how how far were daily lives dominated ruled or uh or or led in any way by the the stories uh, of these gods really impossible to say it's so difficult because we have so little evidence all we can say is that there are temples there are burials there are figures which may represent the gods sometimes placed in in burial mounds, but what people thought the gods were doing for them in their daily lives is is quite hard to say. We do have some evidence from some of the Icelandic sagas. And again, with the sagas, we have the problem that although they're talking about the pagan period in Iceland between around 870 and the year 1000, again, they're written down 200 years later. But they have an idea of going to the temple, um, a temple quite often of Thor, because he was more popular in Iceland, but also of Freya because of his um, connections with fertility, and sacrificing an ox to him and asking him very particularly to make sure your enemy is made to leave the district. Um, And that doesn't happen through supernatural means. It means that the enemy's luck runs out and he loses some lawsuits. But there's still an idea that you ask the gods to do quite precise things for you and you sacrifice to them and something happens or it doesn't happen. And that's a picture that we get from different kinds of sources because in the myths, unlike the Greek myths, we don't really very often have the gods kind of dropping in on humans to see what they're up to or testing them out or or having very much to do with them at all. Once the, the humans have been created apart from Odin's projects to get the greatest heroes to come to Valhurt and practice their their warriorship after death so that they can fight with him in Ragnarok. It's only really Odin who's interested in humans. Everybody else just leaves them alone. I mean, that's that's an interesting point, and one you make in your book that there isn't that much human interaction um, from these stories from the from the from the gods with uh, with the everyday people. Um, I just just uh, it might be outside of your area of expertise, but does archaeology inform us much about uh, about how how people might have been interacting with these uh, with these stories? I mean, we some of these temple sites have been excavated, for instance. What the archaeology tends to do is to confirm or disprove the the written records in a sense. And it will tell us that when the sagas give us stories of a sacrifice involving slaughtering an animal and then reddening the temple ring, and the temple ring seems to be a large, uh, maybe bigger than an arm ring, the size of a really huge door knocker, and that's reddened with the blood of the animal in order to kind of catch the god's attention and make him listen to the, the prayers or the requests that you're putting to him. But what any of that means beyond a kind of, if I do this, then this will happen, is really difficult to say. And the archaeologists are, are very good at finding things which might fit into and, and confirm written narratives. 
So they're always finding these little figurines in graves and saying, well, that definitely looks like Thor. Or this must be, and one of the most recent finds, for example, is a figure that look, has been identified as Odin because he's sitting on the throne and he's got two bird figures perched on the back of the throne. And they've been identified as his two ravens, Hugin and Munin, who go out and gather information for him every day. But also, this figure is wearing female clothing. So maybe it's not Odin at all. Maybe it's somebody else who's got a pair of ravens. Or maybe Odin is, as, as some evidence suggests, is quite um, changeable in terms of sexuality. And for certain rites, he might dress up as a woman, cross-dress, or, or perform kinds of rituals which are normally associated with women. So we look at that little statuette and say, well, is, is that confirming what we thought we knew about Odin, or is it actually stirring it all up? Is it troubling the ideas that we have? And is it Odin anyway? And that's kind of typical of, of the archaeological problem, if you like, that uh, even when you look at the picture stones, you can see figures which are basically a woman with a drinking horn welcoming a man on a horse. Is that a Valkyrie welcoming somebody into Valhurk? Or is it just a woman welcoming her husband home from battle? You can't tell, unless the horse happens to have eight legs, of course, and then you know it is a Valkyrie welcoming Odin, which is great, great help. When you have these little fingerprints in the archaeological record that say that has to be that story, then we can be more secure in identifying the the strength of the evidence that archaeology gives us. Excellent. So, uh, so the archaeology um, maybe confuses at times, but uh, but possibly also um, uh, um, illuminating us. I th we, we should probably have done this a little bit earlier, but it, would it be possible for you to very briefly sketch out some of the main players in the story? You've mentioned uh, some some of the some of the main gods, but just tell us who they are and kind of what they're most notable for. Okay. Well, the most important god my personal favourite god, even though he's you know, perhaps uh, behaves rather badly at times, is the god Odin. He has one eye. Um, he sacrificed his other eye for arcane knowledge, which he's gained by um, giving it in, in, in exchange to learn some particular secrets. He is the one who goes into the world of humans quite often, usually wearing a broad-rimmed hat or a hood covering his face so people don't recognise him. And he has the eight-legged horse Sleipnir, and he has a, a spear called Gungnir, which was made for him by the dwarves. And he's married to Frigg, who is the goddess who gives us Friday in English. She's a, a pan-Germanic goddess. And we don't know very much about her except that she is connected with marriage and perhaps with childbirth. And she is the mother of Baldur, who is the um, god who, kind of unusually for gods who are supposed to be immortal, who is killed as a kind of sacrifice by the, the plotting of Loki. Then we have Thor, who is Odin's son, who is huge, um, whose main function is fighting the giants. He has his great hammer, Myrtnir. And he's married to Sif, who is very beautiful and has long golden hair, which Loki cuts off in a moment of malice and uh, 
She has to have new hair made for her again by the dwarves. We have the god Tyr, about whom we know, don't know very much at all. He's supposed to be a god of law, but his main role in the stories is to lose his hand to the great wolf Fenrir. Um, when the wolf is being bound, Fenrir insists that a god pledges that there's going to be no deceit or tricky business going on. And Tyr is the one who has the courage to put his hand into the wolf's mouth. And as the magic fetters that the gods have got from the dwarves tightens around Fenrir that, so that he's bound forever, the gods all laugh when they see Fenrir struggling. But as, as Snorri tells us, everyone laughed except for Tyr. He lost his hand. And so poor old Tyr is then um, accused by Loki of not dealing straight with people because he hasn't got two hands to balance things out. Um, then we also have, um, among the goddesses, we have Freya, whose name just means lady. She's the sister of Freyr, and those two names are quite difficult to distinguish in some ways, um, Freyr and Freya. Um, Freya, I notice, is now one of the most popular names for little girls in the latest survey of what, what uh, names are being given to children. I saw in the paper today, Freya is some suddenly up in the top 10, I think. And Freya is said to be more sexually promiscuous than Frigg, or indeed any of the other goddesses. I think if you're a goddess of fertility, being quite keen on sex sort of goes with the territory in some ways. But she's certainly prepared to sleep with um, some of the dwarves in order to get a particularly prized necklace. And... Um, there is a story in which she's asked to go and marry one of the giants and she refuses indignantly and says, that you, think you'd be, um, you would think I would have to be the most man-crazed woman alive to want to, to go and marry the giant. And the joke there is that she is one of the most man-crazed women around. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So Ragnarok is, is an extraordinary phenomenon I think in mythology because it's the end of everything and of course Christian mythology has the, the same belief that there will be the last judgment and then heaven and earth will, will be changed forever and the world as we know it will be destroyed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search 
match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So that's kind of the, the, those main figures, but what you've mentioned the Frost Giants before, the Giants. Um, I mean, they, they seem to be a strange bit of this story they seem to be more powerful than the gods in some ways uh certainly ranged against them as enemies at some points uh well, well mostly how sh- how should we understand these giants in this story the giants are very interesting figures who are being reevaluated. i think by scholars in some ways the giants are older than the gods they've always been around and they remember before the gods existed so they seem to represent some kind of, sometimes they're seen as, as the kind of um, natural world, that they live in the mountains or they're associated with frost or with fire, the fire giants who live in the south. And they seem to have a kind of elemental force. But at the same time, although they're separate from the gods and sometimes antagonistic to the gods, it's not that they're not civilised because they have their own halls and they have their own societies. They have quite a few treasures which the gods are keen to get their hands on and which they steal in various ways. And the giants too have their eyes on some of the goddesses and some of the things that the gods possess. So they're quite keen to try and snatch some of those things from the gods. So there's a a constant state of tension um, between them. But at the same time, giantesses are quite often very beautiful And some of the gods are prepared either to marry them or have sexual relations with them. Uh, Thor's mother um, is a giantess. Uh, She's the goddess, well, her name is Jurd, which means earth. So she has a very kind of speaking name. But we can't think that she's one of these giants that has three heads and is horribly unattractive, because I'm sure Odin would have nothing to do with anybody who looked like that particularly. So it's, it's to oversimplify things to say the, the gods are good and the giants are evil because the gods are very morally complex in their behaviour and, and sometimes quite difficult to sympathise with. And sometimes the giants can be um, a bit deceitful and a bit treacherous, but they, they also have their own kind of culture, which they're getting on with quite quietly. And every now and again, it seems they they try to um, cross into the, the the gods' territory, and that's why you have Thor patrolling in the east to keep them all in line and hit them with his hammer to just make sure that that separation between gods and giants is is uh, maintained. You just mentioned morals there, and and as you said, many of the things that the gods do would seem to us to be. Um, morally ambiguous in with, with our with our worldview and our understanding um but maybe not necessarily um 
to the to the mindset in the in the ninth, tenth, eleventh century. Um, how far should we? How far do you do you think these figures and these stories were supposed to be setting some sort of moral precedent for for um, everyday people? Or again, is that something that we simply can't uh, make any ruling on? I think I I would stick my neck out here and say that the the stories about the gods behaving in ways which we would think were morally dubious weren't supposed to be either recommendations do like this or don't do like this. Um, There's an argument, of course, that some of the stories may have been attributed to the gods in order to make them look bad by Christians who are trying to persuade people not to believe in them. That's rather an old-fashioned argument these days. And I think rather the gods behave quite badly because they can, because they're gods. And if you're a human, you wouldn't be able to get away with this kind of behaviour, seducing young women at will, um, or uh, lying or cheating or um, going around seducing other people's wives or sleeping. In fact, some of the goddesses are also accused of sleeping with Loki, mostly accused by Loki of having slept with him. So this kind of victim blaming thing that goes on there. So I think all of this doesn't particularly set any kind of examples for humans, but it it gives us a, a sense of how separate the gods are and how different rules apply to them. Excellent. Very quickly, you've got your your uh, Aesir, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, yep. which is the, those main group of gods, and then you've got the, the uh, Vanir. Vanir. Mm. Yeah. What's what's the story there? What, how do those two groups differ? Oh, well, we would really like to know the answer to those questions. So the, the stories of the gods are really written from the Aesir perspective. And the Aesir comprise the the main group of gods led by Odin, if you like, and Thor belongs to them. And all we know about the Vanir is that we have three of them who are named. Um, That's the god Njörður, who's the god of the sea, and his two children, Freyr and Freya. And we know that the, the mother of the of Freyr and Freya was near the sister because incest seems to be a thing that the Vanir do and the Aesir don't do. And it seems that once the Aesir had built the world, the Vanir turned up from somewhere. And then there was a war which was fought to a kind of standstill. And if we can um, in, if we interpret the the one poem that really talks about this correctly, it seems that Odin has powers that assure him victory, but the Vanir have powers of resurrection. And so if, on the one hand, you're always certain to be able to kill people, but on the other hand, you can always bring those people back to life again, you're stuck in a kind of stalemate. And so the Aesir and the Vanir seem to have come to some kind of agreement around sharing sacrifices and exchanging hostages. And so a couple of the Aesir went off to live with the Vanir in Varnaheim, the land of the the Vanir. And Njörður and Freyr and Freya came to live among the gods. Um, Now the Vanir had Hainir and Mimir as their two hostages. 
And Mimir was very wise, and Hynir, whose name means chicken, um, doesn't seem to be quite so smart. And whenever he was asked his opinion, he'd always say, well, let other people decide. And the Vanir got a bit fed up with this, so they cut Mimir's head off and sent it back to Odin, and they sent Hynir home as well. So in a way, you'd expect that to restart hostilities between them because mistreating hostages isn't a good thing. But Odin preserved the head, and the head can speak to him and give him um, arcane bits of wisdom and knowledge. And Hynir seems to just settle back into telling everybody else they can decide things. And we don't really know what he, he does at all in the in the mythological system. But although Njörður um, and Freya and Freya have settled in among the Aesir, because of their subordinate status, they don't seem to be allowed to marry among the Aesir. And so Freya's, well, Freya can because she's a woman and women can marry up. But Freya and Njörður have wives who are giantesses. So they've had to look outside the kind of social circle of the Aesir. And uh, very, very quickly, this all happens within the context of um, of uh, at the place where the, the gods are supposed to live um, and there's the big tree and the snake and things like that. So what's the, super quickly, what's, what's the, what's the uh, cosmography of, of where they're all supposed to be um, habitating? Well, the centre of the, the world seems to be the great tree Yggdrasil and Odin's hall Valhurt, where all the warriors go when they die, is under the tree. There's a pool where the, the three fates um, sit under the tree as well. And there are various animals in the tree. There's um, a dragon at the roots who's nibbling away at it. There are some deer um, who are eating the leaves. There's a squirrel that runs up and down. And the, the gods all live in an area called Ausgarder, the, the territory of the gods, and they seem each to have their own land and their own hall within this territory. But they come together under the tree for meetings and they feast together in, in certain halls. Below the tree is the world of the dead, where hell reigns and where the unheroic dead go. And then somewhere off to the east is where the giants are, somewhere to the south is where the fire giants are, and then out to the west is the ocean where the, the world serpent, the Midgard's Ormer, is lurking and kind of uh, marking the edge of existence. So um, w- one of the things that sort of has come out from what you've been saying and, uh, and reading your book is very clear. There's, there's lots of, um, well, there's lots of obviously stuff which, uh, which is mythological, which um, would be uh, understood in a certain way. But there's lots of things which uh, are unexplained or seem to be just frankly inconsistent or just don't don't follow so as you mentioned with Boulder being apparently immortal but also uh, being able to die and then there's this the uh, other examples um the, the cow that licks um uh, licks the is it ice or salt to, to to start the world but we don't know where the cow comes from those sorts of yeah. how how should how should we understand these I mean, to us, it kind of, well, to me, it kind of, you know, it, it matters a bit because you come, well, what's, that doesn't make sense. But does that matter in the in the scheme of things? Would it, seemingly, it wouldn't have mattered. Or are we just missing things that, that, that haven't come down to us, do you think? I think this probably goes back to having to remember that these 
these mythological systems grew up in different parts of Scandinavia with different emphases and at different times. So even how the world was created, did it arise just by itself out of the sea, um, as is suggested at one point? Or is it created by a kind of chemical process when ice and fire come together and the ice solidifies? And then, as you say, this random cow turns up and starts licking the first um, anthropomorphic figure out of the ice. Where's the cow? Who knows before all of this? But, yeah, she appears. Um, Or is the universe made by the gods hacking up one of the giants, the, the first giant, Ymir, and using his blood to make the sea and his his brains to make the clouds, which always sounds revolting to me, I think, and his teeth make the rocks and, and his bones and so on. Um, all of those different accounts live alongside each other, and it's quite hard, as Snorri found, when he's trying to systematise all of this. He has the chemical version, um, but then he also has the gods chopping up Ymir, the Ur-giant, as well. And so you can either try and squash them all together and say, well, wait a minute, if this has already happened, why is that happening? Or you just have to say, well, these are competing kinds of narrative. Okay. So so we shouldn't necessarily worry unduly about trying to, to get a, a full holistic understanding of things, um, uh, but just try and uh, just try and try and get into it as, as best we can. Now look, I've got I've, I'm only on one page one of my questions and we've already gone over half an hour. So uh, but there's a couple of things that I really wanted to to get into. Um one of the things that um uh, on the internet, uh, internet searches people just seem desperate to know about is um Valhalla, which uh, should be pronounced Val Valhalla. Valhurt. Well, okay. Yeah, in, Iceland, in modern Icelandic. Mm. People just want to know what what that is about. What's going on there? So, can you just give us a view on that? What's what what is the point and purpose of uh, of that bit of the story? Well, one of the things that Odin is most obsessed with, really consistently across the myths, is finding out what's going to happen at the end of the world when the giants finally attack and Ragnarok comes. And although he kind of knows that the gods are going to lose, he always seems to be searching for something that might falsify that information. Somebody might know an alternative story where the gods are going to win. And in that hope, it seems, he has built a hall, a huge hall with 540 doors, where all of the human heroic dead can come after their deaths and spend their days practising for the great battle by fighting one another and anybody who's killed, although they're all dead, anyone who's killed is resurrected again. And in the evening, they eat um, boiled pork from a, a pig that constantly regenerates itself. And the Valkyries bring them mead. So it's a way in which Odin does pull humans into this final great battle Though, in fact, the only account that we really have of of Ragnarok doesn't really have these figures, the Einherja, as they're called, the the warriors who live in in Valhurt. They don't seem to actually get into a proper battle. In one poem, they're crossing over a bridge on the way to the battlefield and the bridge breaks and they all fall into a river, which seems like a a huge sort of anticlimax for millennia of preparation for this great battle. And perhaps in other versions that we've lost, they do put on a, a better fight. 
but it it points to a, a very strong distinction, which was a, a genuine genuine one, I think, in um, early Scandinavian culture between those who are warriors and those who aren't. And if you're a woman, or if you die in bed of sickness, or if you die of old age, you're not going to Valhurt. You're going to um, the Hall of Hell, which is not necessarily a a particularly pleasant place. It's not as much fun anyway as spending all day fighting and all night eating pig and drinking. Uh, it's not perhaps the afterlife that anybody would really prefer. But hell, it's probably um, important to say hell isn't, it's got the same name as Christian hell, but it's not the same, it's not the same place, is it? No, it doesn't seem to have torments and frogs and toads and ice and fire and all those kinds of appurtenances of punishment. Um, the only thing we really know um, about, or the only real picture we get of hell is when Baldur is dead and has gone to the hall of hell because he was not killed in battle. And uh, a hero called Hermother is sent down to, to get him back again. And hell has a perfectly ordinary hall and people are sitting on the benches and the beer has been brewed and they're all drinking and having a great feast. And Hermoda asks if they can have Baldur back again. And Hell says, well, they can under certain conditions. And then he's given some presents to take back to the gods. So it's not a horrible place to be, but it's just not quite as exciting as um, spending all day fighting. Just just a bit pedestrian then. Yeah. Um, so um, in, when you're watching the, uh, the the TV series or the films and the Viking dies, there's always this sense that, you know, someone says, oh, it's all right, he's going to Valhalla, um, he'll he'll want that, and, uh, and that's a good thing. Are there any um, actual documentary references to um, to um, Scandinavian warriors actually appearing to, to 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 live that life in the sagas or anything else like that do we do we see any um, r- real evidence of, of of people aspiring to that end well again with the caveat that these texts are written down about 200 years after paganism comes to an end we do get some references to to that kind of belief we have um, in one saga for example, Uh, There are two uh, heroes on an island and they realise that a group of berserkers, of particularly fierce warriors, have turned up. Now, to be fair, these two warriors had invited them to come for a big battle. But when they catch sight of them, one of them says to the other, I think tonight we're going to be Odin's guests in Valhurt. And the other one goes, "Mm -hmm." mm-hmm. And the one who says, I think we're going to be lodging with Odin tonight is the one who dies. So he's quite right. And uh, yeah, so we do have references to to people um, talking at least about Valhalla as the Valhalla as the the place that if they fight bravely and die, that's where they're going to go to, and it seems to be a sort of aspiration. Though at the same time, we have a, a couple of poems in which Norwegian kings, um, or one poem in particular in which a Norwegian king has fallen in battle. And he's depicted in the poem as entering Valhurt, and Odin is welcoming him and sending the Valkyries to, to meet him. But the king is clearly really annoyed about being in Valhurt because he'd much rather be alive and on the throne of Norway than having died, however heroic a death he's, he's had. 
we ought to finish. They're just finishing on uh, on, on a, a, what seems like a sensible end place is to think about Ragnarok. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is this is a bit a bit of a strange thing as well because it's kind of the end of the world, but also you've got Baldur, this god who kind of lives beyond it and starts again. Is that is that right? Have I understood things correctly? Yeah. So Ragnarok is is an extraordinary phenomenon, I think, in mythology because it's the end of everything and. Of course, Christian mythology has the the same belief that there will be the last judgment, and then heaven and earth will will be changed forever, and the world as we know it will be destroyed. And so, in that final battle, when the giants come up against the gods, and the gods comprehensively lose, though the monsters like Fenrir and the Midgard serpent are, are also killed, and the earth sinks back into the sea, and the sun is swallowed by a wolf, and uh, Uh, fire rains down from the skies and everything goes black. But after that, the earth comes back out of the sea again and Baldur comes back from the dead along with his brother, the one who who shot him with the mistletoe dart. And it's almost as if the day's survivors creep out of the, the wreckage and go back to the original plane where the gods all lived and they they find a hall or build a new hall and they sit around talking about the old days in it. And humans too, who've been sheltering in some kind of tree, which might be the world tree, also creep out and start again. And it turns out that before she was swallowed by the the wolf, the sun had a daughter. So she comes back. So there's an enormous sense of, of renewal and cleansing after Ragnarok and the sense that everything can start up again and maybe start up in the hope of being better. Okay. Well, that is that's brilliant. I mean, that um, that takes us to a conclusion. Now, like I said, I had loads more things that I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted to talk to you about um, the prophecy of the serious. I wanted to talk to you about Seyfir and cross-dressing <laughs> and, and the role of women in these stories and things like that. I wanted to go into magical drinks and poisons and all sorts of things, but we, I haven't done that, so um, so that's no good. But Well, if what, you ever want to do a second one, I'm very happy to do that. We can do a follow-up. Well, I mean, just, just, just thinking... Just as a, a, a final end point, though, what would you, um, what, what should I have asked you? What areas do you think are the most interesting things? Because we've just kind of had a general overview of of of, uh, of the of the stories, I guess. But what would you say are the things that we should be thinking about, or uh, or, or the most interesting avenues of research that you're aware of in uh, in this topic? I think actually the role of women would be quite interesting because we have so few stories in which the goddesses are directly involved. We have um, Frigg trying to get Baldur back out of hell by making everything weep for him, and that's the origin of condensation. Um, but also figures like the seeress, the, the verva, as she's called in Old Norse, who can remember from before the world was made and who speaks to Odin in the first poem, in the Poetic Edda, and... and skips through the history of the world right up to the point where the earth comes out of the sea again. Why there's that connection of women with this particular kind of magical knowledge and why women seem to know things and why the goddesses seem to know things that the gods don't know and don't speak of them. There's a kind of withheld knowledge that the the women have. 
and the the gods can only kind of prize it out of them by by um, maybe either bribery or or treating them in a way that that encourages them to talk or by threatening them or by using magic on them. It's quite an interesting question whether there was any real life connection with um, priestesses and their actual practices and what kinds of magical women were known of in in Icelandic society, for example, um, going from house to house and telling people's fortunes or or practicing other kinds of of transformative magic is is a, I think a really interesting question. That was Professor Caroline Larrington. Her book, The Norse Gods: A Guide to the Gods and Heroes, is published by Thames and Hudson. You can read much more about the Viking period on our website at historyextra.com forward slash period forward slash Viking. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.